0: Learn more at marines.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No 18. website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty.
1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. The first half this week, is going to be an outside broadcast. Because I'm standing in John Bright Street in Birmingham City Centre, just uh, opposite New Street Station, and not far from all the other amenities you'd expect in a big city centre. But this, John Bright Street, is the location of the old Campkins Billiard Hall, and that was the first ever venue for the World Snooker Championship Final back in 1927. It's absolutely no sign of it. You wouldn't know unless you knew. Uh, obviously, long since knocked down. I couldn't tell you as I look around which building it was. We've got all sorts of cafes here, bars. We've got a casino. It's the site of the Alexander Theatre and uh, the Victoria Pub, which is a well-known pub in these parts. But absolutely no sign of where Campkin's Hall was. But it's quite a, a short street. It's not uh, not that long. So somewhere within sort of stone throwing distance stood the site of the old Campkins Hall. It was owned by Bill Campkin. He was, uh, a, as you would expect, a billet hall owner and uh, an enthusiast at the time. He knew Joe Davis well. And the two of them were responsible for the World Championship, well, starting, and also, of course, the continuity that we now have. They uh, went out and bought the trophy, for example, using half the entry fees that's still presented to this day. Bill Kampkin was an interesting character because, uh, off his own bat, he actually produced a rule book which was slightly contradictory to the official rule book of snooker that existed back then. For example, he, had, uh, he introduced four, four points for a foul, which uh, didn't exist. Uh, there was actually one point for a foul in the early days. Uh, but Bill Campkin, he was uh, in his early 30s, back in uh, the 1920s. And he also refereed the final, so he was very much in the thick of things, not only using his own pillion uh, hall for the event. Certainly for the final, but also involved as a referee. 1924, we have to go back to Tom Dennis, who was a, a player. He wrote to the governing body of billiards and snooker. In those days, it was pretty much billiards. Snooker was seen as an upstart sport. Um, it had come along and was relatively young, and they were a bit suspicious of it. The old billiards, the old billiards type at that time. And he wrote to the governing body. He goes, past. it's all, all the colour here. I know it's not an audio service, but I hope we're getting the, the colour of, uh, of this Thursday morning in Birmingham. Um, he wrote to the authorities, Tom Dennis, and asked them if they would consider promoting professional snooker tournament. And the reply he got was typically sniffy. They said, well, uh, we don't think there'll be enough interest in snooker. We don't think there'll ever be enough interest. So they didn't. But two years later, 1926, Joe Davis, Will, with Bill Campkin, came to them and said, look, we can get a venue for the final why don't you put it on? And they put it on with 10 entrants. So the first World Championship had 10 entrants and started in 1926, November 1926, a series of matches but as I say, ended up here in Birmingham. Joe Davies beat Tom Dennis in the final, and that was the first professional snooker tournament ever staged. It's worth considering, I think, <laughs> Britain in 1927, what it was like, what the world was like. Of course, this was between the world wars. There's no television, obviously. Just a sort of s- society... Women under 30 couldn't vote. That had yet to be brought in. Prime Minister was Stanley Baldwin. The day before the final ended, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was formed. That's the body that now, of course, brings us the Oscars. And a week later, so the following week after the final, Charles Lindbergh made the first solo non-stop transatlantic flight on the Spirit of St Louis. So these were heady times. And you knew in a pretty anonymous street here Birmingham that something special was happening in the snooker world that would, as I say, obviously the torment, iteration of the torment changed many times over the years, but would in time lead to what we have now at the Crucible. Uh, it all started here, back uh, nearly a 100 years ago now, and there is, as I say, there is nothing here <laughs> to, to illustrate that or to mark it in any way other than me coming down here and you might think well you know good on you for making the pilgrimage i literally live five minutes walk from here so it's not actually a big deal and i'd never actually to my shame i knew that it'd been held in birmingham but i'd never actually bothered to to find out where specifically it was and here it is john bright street on let's say just off from new street station Uh, but it's very much in right in the heart of the city center this is where a little bit of snooker history happened and the next venue, or the next part of Birmingham I'm going to go to, I'm going to get the train to Selly Oak. Because in 1972, in that very part of Birmingham, Alex Higgins won the World Championship. It's about a 10-minute train journey. Of course, what, I, what the one show would do here is they'd stop people as they walk past and they'd ask them what sporting event they think started in the street. It's easy to do that when you've got a camera. It's not quite so easy to do if you've just got a phone. Most likely get punched, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, and, of course, the other hoary old thing to do when I get to New Street would be to, uh, to illustrate that I'm there, would be to play a little bit of a station announcement. That. That's another old cliche. This is a customer ask them. passengers are
0: advised using technical bolt or devices, of the devices
1: without the sender platforms or correct train information. Please check the large screens. Alternatively, that's the number for information. That's a bunch of air space to be here. Approaching Sydney Oak. Please mind the gap when leaving the train and step onto the platform before removing heavy luggage and fresh chair. Okay, so I've made it to Selly Oak, or Selly Park now, Selly Oak uh, Station, about a fifteen minute walk to the Pershore Road. Quite a busy road. You might be able to hear the traffic in the background. And this is the site. So I looked it up through Birmingham City Council's sort of planning archive. Number seven two three on the Pershore Road was the site of the Selly Park, Royal British Legion, and that is where, in 1972, Alex Higgins won the World Championship. Now, it's gone, it, like Campkin's Hall, it's gone, it's now uh, flats, a couple of blocks of flats. Uh, you would never have known again that it was ever here, uh, but this little uh, pocket of Birmingham, as I say, it's about well, it's ten minutes on the train, from the centre of Birmingham was the scene of uh, one of the most historic moments in the history of the sport. The 1972 World Championship, it was a long one. It started through 1971, in fact. It lasted 11 months. A series of quite lengthy matches because, of course, there wasn't a circuit then. Pop Black had just started. The odd other event here and there, but mainly it was all about the World Championship. So they certainly took their time because the first prize... wasn't on television, obviously. The first prize was £480. And played in... Well, virtual anonymity. The press weren't interested. I remember Clive saying that he tried to get sports editors interested and they basically weren't. But, of course, word of mouth counts for a lot. And Alex Higgins already by that point, people were getting excited by this new professional. They were hearing stories about exhibitions and, and word had travelled from Northern Ireland, where he was from. And uh, they came out in huge numbers to watch the final against John Spencer because they'd never seen anything like the sort of snooker that he was playing. Interestingly, actually, we're we're not far, we're about 10 minutes from Pebble Mill, the old BBC studios, where of course Pop Black was played all those years. So, this little sort of triangle of Birmingham, actually, from a Snoopy perspective, is quite historic. Uh, You wouldn't know it, as I say, being here, but Pebble Mill's only just down the road. That's where, in a very sort of, very comfortable, refined, respectable way, Snoopy was presented to the public. But here, 50 years ago, in Sally Park, it was a very different story. It was very much a snooker red in tooth and claw. It was the 70s, it was a time of power cuts. The, uh, the, uh, the lights failed more than once, they brought in a mobile generator to try and uh, get the power back up, but uh, it certainly wasn't anywhere near what we used to now. Uh, and such was the demand for, from the public, of course they had to, it's the old story, but it's true, they used to... Turn over the beer crates to use them as seating and uh had never seen anything mind before, and of course, as I say, Sports said you just have to sort of sit up and take notice, because if the public are interested, they have to be interested. And Clive reported for BBC Northern Ireland and various newspapers on uh, the ultimate triumph for Alex Higgins. We're thinking about again Britain fifty years ago, 1972, Prime Minister of Ted Heath, Richard Nixon was about to win a second term in the White House. It was the year of Bloody Sunday, it was the year The Godfather film was released, Bobby Fisher became world chess champion, the last trip to the moon through Apollo 17, and of course there are only three British television channels, and snooker was only just starting to make an impact, but because of Alex Higgins, because of what happened here on this very spot 50 years ago, again, snooker became big in the public consciousness, and we are where we are now. And in terms of where we are now, I can tell you in terms of what's around what was the old British Legion, we've got a circle, 7.5 circle, there's a little local store and post office, there's a petrol station, a BP garage with a little coffee shop sort of bolting onto it, a uh, Marks Spencer sort of food station, as it were, bolting onto it, and other than that it's residential the walk from the station was interesting because first it was quite run down actually and then suddenly you turned the corner and you were into suburbia and it really was uh, very leafy lovely houses actually so it's a bit of a sort of mixed area I think economically um, but that's true of any, uh, of any big city of course uh, it's hard to picture exactly what it was like 50 years ago they'd stayed down at the, uh, the Strat Allen Hotel which is on the Hagley Road and John Spencer uh, uh, before one session of the final because of the power cut got stuck in the lift and there was no docking the frames you just had to, had to wait for it to turn up but anyway it's been nice to see it even though ultimately there's nothing to see but it's nice to actually just come and pay homage and uh, again no one around here really appreciates the significance of this very spot I'm standing. my next uh, part of the journey I'm on my way back now home. but on the way I'm going to stop somewhere which is quite special to me. Okay, so this is the last leg of my odyssey around snooker history of Birmingham. I did actually go past Pebble Mill. There's not a lot to see there now that tells you we have a TV studio. Uh, I'm quite sure what it is. It's some sort of uh, medical facility, I think. There is a plaque up outside to, to say it was once the BBC studios, but uh, no mention of Pop. Right? But anyway, I'm now on the Hagley Road. I'm standing opposite what is now a small hotel, but back uh, 23 years ago, I walked through the doors of the snooker scene office. This is where it was, 202 Hadley Road. Um, and they have been there a number of years. Uh, and uh, that was kind of the start of my journalistic career. I had worked previously for the WPBSA for about 18 months, but in terms of freelance journalism in snooker, that's where it began. Uh, there were three rooms within the office. Our secretary had one. Phil Yates, when he was in, had another one and uh, Clive had the the, the main office and I would sit at the desk uh, to his left and uh, didn't go in all the time because obviously a lot of the time we were at tournaments but in between events, that's where the magazine was put together and that's where we had the page proofs and the plans and that's where we had uh, various discussions and conversations about what should go in the magazine Uh, and yeah, it was uh, quite an education and um, quite an experience to to be at Clive's elbow as he, as he put it together, and of course in the early days before so it went digital, it was all it had to be laid out, you know, on the uh, on the printing presses to, forever to kind of go through it and to put it together. And that time, I mean, I'm going to talk about Stuber's scene when I get indoors, where you can probably hear me properly. But that time that Clive gave over to putting that together every month was uh, absolutely extraordinary. And so much should have happened here, we left eventually um, to a smaller office and then in, in more recent times, particularly during lockdown, five centuries, these office has been his house. Uh, but this is where it happened. It's not, again, you know, you wouldn't know that. No one would know that going fast. the a safe now hotel. Life goes on. But uh, quite a special place for me. I used to get the bus up Hadley Road uh, to come to this office. And uh, it's kind of sad to think that the magazine looks like it's... Uh, well, certainly the iteration of Clive's editor it has come to an end The um, great sweep of snooker history began early 1971 This was before Alex Higgins had won that world title Sally Park and all the incredible moments in the television age have been, have been documented and of course the first flowering of so many players it, have been documented in snooker scene as well so uh, I suspect this will be the last time I ever not necessarily come down the ugly Road, but ever sort of stop in the spot and take a look. Uh, I'm glad I did, but our next you here will be mine, and it will be indoors. Well, I'm back indoors now. Uh, no more cars and general hubbub. Um, I was in a wistful mood, uh, as you could probably tell there. And uh, literally as I walked through the door when I got home, because this was Thursday, the, uh, the news came through the Queen was seriously ill and, of course, passed away later that day so you know we talk about end of an era for snooker scene end of an era for the country and uh, always when these things happen it's a, a time to reflect and my reflection really on my little trip around Birmingham and indeed the whole sort of situation with the end of the magazine is snooker does not do enough to honour its own history. It's a sport that is obsessed with nostalgia we're obsessed with the good old days, and that is mainly rose-tinted stuff. I always say to people who say, you know, the, the good old days, the 80s, actually sit down and watch a whole match. <laughs> I'll pick the players. It, it ain't going to be Alex Higgins and Jimmy White, by the way. It'll be, you know, some, some, some of the old bruisers. You sit down, best of 19, you know, four or five hours. Let me know what you think. <laughs> but, of course, people don't see it that way. They see, you know, and listen... I've been guilty of this as well. I was guilty of it last week. Things like Snooker Loopy and that whole kind of that whole era. And it was fun. Let, let's be clear. I grew up watching Snoop in that time. It was a lot of fun. But it's fun now, actually, in a different way. Um, and the game is played to a higher standard now. Anyway, the point is our history is important. Okay? Because our history tells us where we've come from, tells us how we've got here. There used to be at the Crucible. Uh, the Heritage Room, one by, run by Roger Lee, who's a, a snooker and billiards historian. Great guy, Roger, and it was a very interesting room. It had lots of really old stuff, you know, sort of going back years and years to even before when snooker was invented. And the, Roger, in the end, I mean, it was very popular with people at the Crucible, but he had to make way because the sponsors changed and they needed the room. And as people know, it's very cramped at the Crucible. There wasn't actually room for that, but we don't have for example a permanent museum it's something i know jason ferguson from the wpbsa is hoping to to do in the future one of those projects he'd like to get off the ground myself and hector nuns uh, wrote a, a long history of snooker for the wpbsa website which uh, you can go and read but in general we don't actually uh, respect the history of the sport and it just occurred to me walking around these sort of fairly sort of nondescript places this week wouldn't it be great if there was a plaque just up on on John Bright Street to, to say that, you know, here once stood Campkins Hall, the venue for the first ever World Professional Snooker Championship final, or where Alex Higgins, you know, won that title 50 years ago, if there was just a plaque to acknowledge that. and There's lots of places around the country because there's been venues that have come and gone, been knocked down, all sorts of places where things have happened. I mean, you look at Preston Guildhall, so many things happened there, but the last frame ever played there... Was Ronnie O'Sullivan making his 1,000th century? Another piece of snooker history. So I don't know, obviously, how practical that is to to even arrange such a thing. But we need something to to honour the history of the sport. And of course, you know, you can make it more relevant and more modern. You can have just maybe an online interactive map of of the world where you, okay, this is where the Nunnawading Basketball Stadium. This is where they had the World Championship in 1973, etc., etc., etc. The point is, we don't acknowledge history. We're obsessed with nostalgia, and really, I think it would be nice if that if that changed, and if we could actually, because as I say, I've been living in Birmingham for years. I had no idea, <laughs> literally five minutes walk from where I live, that's where that that venue was, that snooker club where they played well, billiard hall. It was where they played that uh, that first ever final. On snooker scene, just to clear one thing up, Clive has stepped down as editor, but he was also the owner of the magazine. And this is why when people say to me, oh, you should take over, it's not it's not as straightforward as that. Clive is closing the magazine because it's no longer financially sustainable to keep it going. So it's not a question of just getting a new editor. Someone will need to take it over. They'll need to buy it and run it as a viable concern themselves. I know he's had some interest in that, but obviously... Um If that did happen, then quite rightly they would have their own editorial staff And, you know, good luck to them on that This podcast continues, by the way At some point we may have to change the name of it um, If there is another iteration of Snooker Scene But as far as I'm concerned, that's my time with the magazine is over um, And it's uh, it's sad in a way Everything ends though, we've seen that all round this week, haven't we? Everything ends um, I think Clyde can be very proud of his contribution um, the magazine when he started it had two main functions the first was to report the game and of course if this was before the professional game really took off began in 1971 as the circuit started to grow obviously there was more to report and in the in the pre-internet age that is the the record there of the sport the other side of it was to report the administration of the game and that became more and more relevant as money came in and various characters became involved in trying to control snooker trying to steer the way it was run clive was right there at the center of the storm reporting all of that if you read his book black fast and cue ball wizards um he sort of lays it all out there it was quite tumultuous but in the end of course he did get what he wanted which was stability and investment, and a more professional course being steered. It's not all perfect by any means, but it's far better than it was. And so many of the things he campaigned for ultimately happened. And in a way, that's why Snooker scene, I suppose, declined in the end, because those two functions it had, the first in terms of reporting the game, so much of that was available elsewhere through the internet age. And in terms of the administration, there was less to kind of get riled up about, to put it bluntly. There was less to be angry about, there was less to campaign about. So I think the twin functions of snooker scene maybe became less relevant as the years went on. And also the reality is people um, less and less bought printed magazines. Clive was 85 uh, last week and deserves to enjoy... A retirement now. I'm sure that you know he can't switch off from snooker. That's that's for sure. But he doesn't need to be doing this every month. And uh, but it goes back to what I said about the the sort of plaques and the history of the sport. I've actually I've written to World Snooker Tour and asked them to consider naming one of the trophies in Clive's honour. We do this with other people in the sport, of course, the home nations for, for legends like Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Ray Reardon, Alex Higgins. The Masters Trophy is named in honor of Paul Hunter, who won it three times. The German Masters Trophy is named in honor of Brandon Parker, who was the promoter responsible for taking Snooger to Berlin. So this is something we've done with other tournaments. I think it would be it wouldn't cost anything, that's the first thing to say. And I think it would be just a nice way to remember somebody and honour somebody who has been very, very significant in our sport and I'm very grateful that they are going to discuss it. Where where it leads, we'll see. Obviously, sponsors, maybe we'll have something to say about it and all the rest of it. That's, you know, not for me. But I, I, I'm grateful that they're going to dis- discuss it. And it's something that I've thought about for other people in the sport as well. I mean, you know, there was an opportunity when, 20 years ago now, 2001, Joe Davis' centenary, they could have, you know, why not rename the World Championship trophy after him? Because he was obviously a very, very important figure. But anyway, that's... Not, not in my hands, but in general, um, and the kind of theme I think this week is that the history of the sport is important and we should do more to honour the history rather than get sort of caught up in nostalgia. Because history, I suppose, if you want to look at it in a sort of simple way, history is fact, whereas nostalgia so often it gets caught up in memory, which is often false memory of how things actually were. It's not the most upbeat episode, I, I, I get that. But anyway, uh, I did find, I was looking, uh, because Clive has written many books, and one of them was the Embassy Book of World Snooker, and we were talking about the early days of snooker. And, uh, of course, everybody, we, we mentioned last week the Colonel Neville Chamberlain, who uh, is credited with inventing snooker. But here in this book, there is a, well, a, a little, a little uh, section with the headline, Alternative Theory, and this is quite interesting, I'll read this out. Says, Although Neville Chamberlain was always generally, has always generally been credited with the invention of snooker, the theory inconveniently ignores a poster dated 1869 which still hangs in the snooker room at the Garrick Club in London. It describes the rules of Savile and Garrick snooker, which confirms that some form of billiard table game featuring several coloured balls was being played in the 1860s. Chamberlain may either have been copying this or introducing a variant of his own on the day that he introduced snooker to the officer's mess of the Devonshire Regiment in Jubbalpore, 1875. One of the Savile and Garrick rules might, if reintroduced, enliven some of the more tedious matches of today. In the event, of the, in the event of the yell, in the in, I'll have another run of that. It says here, in the event of the yellow ball being involved in a foul stroke, the rules state, it's custom for the watchers to cry out the word bollocks. Well, <laughs> that would certainly. Uh, that would certainly encourage crowd interaction if that was brought back. But anyway, uh, the, 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 the the nub of that seems to be that ne- Neville Chamberlain may actually have just stolen the, the the whole concept of snooker from something else. We don't know if that's true, and he's not here to defend himself, so we'll let it go. But anyway, that's uh, the Embassy Book of World Snooker. Now then, uh, well, on, on the closure of the magazine, we had got a couple of uh, messages here. Simon Biggin says, What devastating news to hear the snooker's Bible, snooker scene, is to be no more with its last publication being September what can I say it's sad and perhaps understandable as I understand not only the rising costs but Clive's recent ill health I want you to convey to Clive from me and I'm sure the many thousands who enjoy this magazine a heartfelt thank you I've been a reader since the mid 80s I've still got them I always look forward to getting stuck in he simply is the best writer of the sports I've ever come across his straight as a die approach and integrity are very rare and Clive and the magazine has it in bucket loads whether about players players or the administration of the sport. Something I will miss, but credit to you, Dave, as you seem to share that trait. Thank you. Clive would have been forgiven to use the last publication front cover to blow his trumpet over the last 50-plus years. Snooker scene has been in print, but instead he did what you would expect, the winner of the latest tournament adorning the front cover class. Best wishes to you, Clive, and the team. Thank you, Simon. Alpha Bonzi on a similar theme. He says, I'm sorry to hear the snooker scene magazine will no longer be published after 50 years of fighting the good fight from Clive Everton. When I got into snooker in 2001 2 when I wasn't studying for GCSEs, I would go to WH Smith's and read a copy. 20 years on, the only hobby I have is collecting old snooker scenes, mainly from the 01-02 season, reading the backstage attempts of the Rex Williams, Jim McKenzie regime trying to deflect the fact that sponsorships and TV deals were being lost left, right and centre with dress code changes and other failed attempts to blindside the public and the magazine. And the magazine was the only one telling it how it was. I laughed at how Clive Everton, yourself and other writers would have fun at Rodney Walker's expense in various issues from 03 to 0910 when Matchroom took over the running of the game and Clive Everton's good fight had finally been won. Help permitting it would be great to have him on the podcast to discuss his greatest moments and the magazine's greatest triumphs. Here's to his post-snooker scene career. Thank you, uh, Alpha, and uh, we will we'll continue now with uh, some other issues. Because um, we, as I say, have been a bit downbeat. Um, thank you, Jarrah Warman, who uh, sent me footage, of course, of Mark Selby singing at various uh, various events and recept- uh, tournament receptions. i yes, we had the the, the the music spectacular last week. I was really limiting it mainly to, to players who had uh, actually released records, which Mark's never done, although, you know, he's got a nice voice. I've, I've been present at many of these uh, occasions, and he's, uh, he's been up there uh, many times leading the, uh, the sing-song. Jennifer Best. It's an interesting one about the, uh, the women's uh, game. She says, I was listening to your last podcast. My interest was piqued, or should I say extra piqued, by the discussion on having female events running in parallel with the main tour events. Something I'd been thinking about for a while, so thought I would throw in my tuppence worth, so here goes. Whilst the four tour cards being allocated to the players from the women's tour is definitely a step in the right direction, I feel the four players receiving those cards carry a lot on their shoulders. Not only are they dealing with the pressure of being new pros, but they're breaking down barriers and having to explain their presence in a way others don't. To me, there needs to be more initiatives which act as a stepping stone between the women's tour and the main tour rather than just throwing them into the lion's den. The mixed doubles will hopefully do that in part, but I think it would be beneficial to see more of the females playing each other. With that in mind, I was wondering whether it would be an idea to have an all-female group at an invitational championship league. The female players would play each other in a group with the winner progressing to the next stage. That way, the female players get a decent chance to earn some cash and one of them is guaranteed to progress whilst being in somewhat familiar territory, but still having more coverage of the female game. I realise any attempt to mix things up in favour of the female players, we met with cries of discrimination against the male players. However, I feel that misses the point completely. Even without getting into a discussion about inequalities, any reasonable fan or player must admit that a better balance can only be good for the sport, especially as women's sport in general gains more momentum. I'm no expert, but surely a better balance means a broader fan base, which ultimately means more money for the game. It's a shame that snooker as one of the few sports where different genders could compete against each other, hasn't capitalised on this to date. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Um, On the specific point, the Championship League invitation version, um, if it was an all-female group, obviously you'd need seven players. There's only four on tour. And the other thing is, I mean, that would create a few waves, I think, because that event is for, well, it's based on the rankings. So there's 25 players get in it. So in theory, the top 25 and obviously... If some of those don't take their place, we go further down the list. So it would be a big step to uh, have a a group outside of that because obviously there's going to be players there for... I mean, you'd have to be the first group as well to guarantee that all the women are in it. So effectively, there's going to be seven players there who are not going to get in that tournament. So there's things like that which would have to be balanced. um, Whether it, it could be done under a new event rather than an existing one, but what you say is right, of course. You know, the, the more different types of people are seeing playing snooker, the more its appeal will broaden out. It's clearly um, just self-evident. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the mixed doubles will be very interesting um, on that score. It's, of course, coming up very soon. Um, and if that goes well, then, you know, may well be more initiatives along the lines of what you're suggesting. Now we have an uh, email from Ryan Bartle. I just want to say to start by... I'll start that again because that's not what he wrote. He said, he said I just want to start by saying how much I enjoy listening to the podcast. Like some other the people who have written in, I started listening during the first COVID lockdown and have remained an avid listener ever since. My question is about whether you think snooker should be considered a sport or some people I've spoken to suggest it's more of a game. Not that these things are mutually exclusive. The reason I ask is that some people seem sceptical of the idea that snooker and other bar sports such as darts qualifies genuine sports. My view is that snooker very much is a sport. Some object that a person does not need to be an athlete in order to be a professional snooker player. This is true, but if athleticism is the main criterion of whether something is a sport, other sports, such as golf and bowling, would presumably fail to make the grade. The main reason I think snooker is a sport is that it does not rely solely on good strategy and mental prowess, although these are very important, but also on immense physical skill. This is where I think the analogy between chess and snooker, which you briefly alluded to in a recent episode, comes apart. Chess is purely a game, wherein success is determined by good mental tactics and not by how well a person physically manoeuvres pieces around the board. Chess pieces need to be placed in the right places, but there is no physical skill involved in putting them there. Indeed, a person could win a game of chess without even touching any pieces, by instructing someone where they want the piece moving to, or by playing chess digitally. This is a world apart from snooker. A person may have perfect knowledge about where they want to move the cue ball, all the angles, how to get perfect position, how much side to use, etc. But unless they can physically execute the shot, this won't make them a good snooker player. People say snooker isn't a physical sport, but does it not take immense physical skill and power to come off five cushions and get perfect position, or screw the cue ball back almost the full length of the table, as Trump does with regularity? Not to mention some of the more intricate physical skill involved, in things like getting out of snookers or applying side, anyone who thinks snooker isn't physical presumably hasn't played snooker. Anyway, that's my opinion on the subject. I'd be very happy. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts, Ryan Bartle. Well, Ryan, that's a brilliant email which you've articulated very well. Actually, um, I can't really add to that. I think I thought it was a perfect demonstration of why snooker is a sport. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say it was anyway, but I think you've made the case very well. Actually, um, the, the, the physical kind of architecture of how you go about winning the frame of snooker Um, you don't have to have been in the gym, you know, three hours every day it's not about physical strength but it is about physical manoeuvrability, as it were as as you've very eloquently put so yes, I'm on board with all of that We'll end uh, this week with Gordon, who's got to three points he wants to make, and I'll, I'll deal with them one at a time, Gordon he says, as I don't write this email, a little over two hours ago, we learned that World Snooker Tour are finally going to stop this we-don't-pay-mediocrity uh, attitude for the season ahead by ensuring every player is guaranteed £20,000 in two lump sums of £10,000. This obviously doesn't benefit anyone in the upper echelons of the rankings, top 16 at the very least, and why should it? But for everyone far down the rankings, this is what they've been wanting for a long time. Do you think if the trial succeeds, WST should permanently keep the 20000 as part of being a main tour player? Obviously, they would have to put in some changes but it would mean there would be no real need to move prize money further down the early rounds. Players who can't win first-round matches would at least get their travel, accommodation and similar expenses covered, but fall off the tour, which is the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Well, yes, this was announced last week. I think this is a very good move. I think it's a very positive move. It's a change of um, policy, for sure. Um, As little as six months ago, I wrote a piece on the Eurosport website. By the way, my column is returning this week. Um, That's one of the things about... Snooker scene going. It's now. This is now the only writing I do on snooker. I used to do so much writing on snooker, which is um, writing is one of my favourite things to do. Full stop. Uh, for newspapers and obviously the snooker scene and various other. I did the blog for years and so on and so on. But now I'm uh, <laughs> I'm limited to to this Eurosport column. But I very much enjoy writing it and it is out this week. But anyway, um I wrote one last season and. um I asked World Snooker for their response and they were sticking very much, very doggedly to this line that we don't pay first round losers and it's sports and meritocracy and all the rest of it. However, behind the scenes, people were arguing the case that that should change. And clearly those arguments have now been won. Again, I think I can see the hand of Jason Ferguson here, the WPBSA chairman, who, of course, was a player. He's very connected to how players think. I think whatever they'd have done, it wouldn't have suited everyone. We've seen some complaints already that, you know, people can get money basically for not winning a match. They could get, you know, 40,000 over two years. I think that's the wrong way to look at it, actually. What this does is it gives a degree of financial stability. It makes the difference, I think, between going, for example, to the UK Championship, that first round where it's something like six and a half grand, the difference between, or it was under the old format, between, um, winning and losing in the first round and, for so many people the pressure when you've got a mortgage to pay you've got bills to pay you've got to live your life and feed your family and all the rest of it the pressure is huge clearly it's already a difficult game to win anyway but with that extra pressure it's almost unbearable so at least now if you've got that guarantee of the 20000 you're not solely focused on how am I going to pay my bills and hopefully what this will do is encourage more people actually to stick with snooker it's got to be a help to the to the non-british players who of course so many of them are at a disadvantage because they have to come to britain to play in the qualifiers they don't all get funding i really think it's important that they take advantage of this i'm told that you have to enter every event so it's not you can't just sort of take the 20 grand and play in three tournaments you have to enter every tournament and that's an option now on the the way that the players actually enter the events on the online portal there's a, there's a button where you can click enter every tournament so the the powers that be will know who's entered and who hasn't but I think it's a positive yeah and I, I think the question here is will it continue I think it, it would well what would be the reason for it not to continue other than purely financial of course because it's going to be potentially a big outlay it's not just it's essentially a loan because if you earn if you earn Money you have to it gets deducted from it. So, if you weren't, for example, twenty one thousand in prize money, you know you would get the twenty thousand loan, but you but you would have effectively have earned a thousand pounds. But that but that twenty thousand uh, is going to be a, a lot of help to lower ag players, I think. And I think it's good to see something's been done. Whether it, we'll see in the span of time whether this is the right approach as opposed to paying prize money or paying a certain expenses each tournament we'll see but they've done something they have listened they've done something and I think that that should be applauded and I think that Alfie Burden actually who's a very sort of straight talking old school sort of snooker player just won the uh the Ron Gross uh memorial tournament actually that uh that he helped to organize and he put it I think as well as I've seen anyone put it he just said look this is 20,000 but wasn't there yesterday that's there today so surely that's something that's got to be applauded and I think most players actually would do there's always going to be people who try and find fault with these things but I think this is a good step forward and I think that it's good to see that there's an acknowledgement that people are struggling and that they can be helped Gordon's second point, he says, we learned the six reds was postponed officially. Obviously, to many people, this wasn't new information, not just through your podcast episode, but it was evident on the Eurosport coverage of the European Masters it wasn't going to be broadcast by the fact there was no Eurosport coverage of the event planned or your own commentary on the subject during the tournament. Why did it take until the week before for WST to announce this information when it feels like something that should have been announced much sooner? Had this gone out sooner, broadcasters and the Tour might have been able to plan for a replacement event to fill the space. As it stands, I can't see the six Reds being moved to any other part of the season. as There's no feasible gap for that now. Well, it's true, everyone everyone kind of was told it was off. But the complication here was there's been a bit of a power shift in Thai snooker. And it seemed that the old guard were very keen to put it on and the new guard less keen, shall we say. And they were waiting, I think, World Snooker, waiting to see actually how that would play out. It it wasn't It wasn't officially, um, 100% officially called off, but everyone expected it to be off, if you know what I mean. So there was maybe a sort of 2% chance it would happen. Um, but, you know, let's be clear, the broadcasters were told it wasn't on, the players were told not to travel, the World Snooker staff were told they weren't going. So, that, you know, the writing was on the wall, these things obviously have to be done officially. It can look a bit bizarre to the outside world sometimes, but I'm sure that, um, that World Snooker just had to go sort of through the sort of official channels, as it were, in terms of how they were going to announce it. It's not like they forgot to tell people. They had told people unofficially, which is why it came as no great surprise when, when it was actually, uh, you know, announced that it was off. Gordon's final point. says, broadcasters seem to be able to upset someone randomly in the snooker community for one reason or another. The BBC in particular gets a lot of stick for its coverage. And while some of that criticism is valid, for example, commentators who will remain nameless appearing to have no clue about the players they're commentating on, which should never be happening, a lot of it seems unnecessary. Why does the BBC get a lot of hate for its coverage in comparison to ITV and Eurosport? I'm not suggesting all broadcasters are perfect, but the BBC regularly seems to attract far more criticism than anyone else for such inane reasons like Steve Davis's punditry is out of date, where the complainer should perhaps remember that their coverage that the coverage provided by the BBC is very much targeted towards casual fans who perhaps rarely watch any other tournament or are discovering it for the first time, And like say, ITV and Eurosport, who are probably targeting somewhat more clued-in fans, although arguably with ITV1 finally broadcasting a tournament, can be said it's, really, it's closer to the BBC now. Well, Gordon, I mean, my, my question in response to your question is, why do any of them get stick? I mean, they're all doing a brilliant job, I think, in different ways... Um, I know all the teams who work across the various channels because I commentate for Eurosport and ITV I've known a lot of the people at IMG for a while who do the BBC coverage they're all incredibly committed they work long hours you know if the snooker starts at one o'clock they don't all roll in at quarter to by any means you know you see them at breakfast with the laptops out you know you never switch off you see them after play in the bar still working still planning what we're going to do tomorrow and, and across every detail and So many people, I think, when they think of the coverage, they they get obsessed with sort of the punditry and all that, but that's only a very small part of it, actually. I mean, as Hazel Irving said when she spoke to Nick and Phil on, on Talking Snooker, it's a team, and everyone has their part to play, everyone works hard, and I think the coverage across the board that Snooker fans receive is brilliant, actually, compared to a lot of sports. I think it's really good. As I say, each channel is slightly different, but they all are really committed. I think the problem is that when you say, you know, the, the stick they get, our only sort of window, really, onto what people think is social media. You know, you don't stop people in the street and ask them, what do you think of this new the snooker coverage? The, the sort of the focus of it is social media. And as we know, those platforms tend to attract a very negative worldview and very negative mindset. They're, they're places for small, often tedious complaints about things. So I think we can get a false... Sense of what people actually think because we see that and we think, oh well, you know, there's so much, uh, there's so much negativity in the snooker world. Actually, there isn't. You meet snooker fans at tournaments; it's the exact opposite. They're delighted to be there. They love the game. They want to talk about it. They're passionate about it. And I think actually the TV coverage across the board is, is really appreciated. I think with the BBC, in general, they get more stick because they're the BBC and because of the way they're funded, people feel a certain ownership in Britain. You know, it's our BBC. We're often told that, and if that's the case, then we feel entitled to pick faults with it. But I mean, I was watching. We go back to the the death of the Queen this week. I was watching a lot of the coverage on Thursday afternoon before the news was announced, but it was sort of felt that it was coming. And Hugh Edwards and Nicholas Witchell in the BBC studio were exemplary. It was a masterclass in being sensitive, but also not being patronising. Um, They were both, you know, long-standing journalists. Hugh Edwards was a big Snooker fan. He's been to the Crucible, big John Higgins fan. And, of course, it was his uh, responsibility ultimately to announce the news of of the passing of the Queen. And he did it with such dignity. I'm going to throw a name into the mix here, Walter Cronkite. Now, Walter Cronkite was CBS News' anchor for many years. When you think of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the announcement of his death... The only clip you ever see is Walter Cronkite. He does that thing where he takes off his glasses and he gives us the time and the date because he's aware that it's fixed in history. There were three networks back then. The other two networks would have announced the news. You never see clips of that because the iconic moment was Walter Cronkite. And I have to say I've seen some of the other um, footage of other channels announcing the Queen's passing, and what the one we're going to see 50 years from now will be Hugh Edwards, um, the way he did it on the BBC. And, of course, at times of national crisis, national moments, we turn to the BBC still. There's a lot of people who would love to destroy it for their own ends, but it is still a very important national institution. And they have, of course, covered snooker for actually almost the entire reign of the Queen. The first, last week was the anniversary, the first ever snooker match they showed was 1950 on the BBC, black and white and it was an exhibition match in in effect to introduce people to it and they're still going strong now they're still committed to the sport and that's something that I think uh, they should be applauded for so in my view and I am biased because I work for two of the three broadcasters you mentioned but I think they do a great job I've seen the work they put in the effort they put in and I think the fact that Snooker still attracts such great viewing figures is testament yes of course to the players obviously but also to the way that it's broadcast Um, and all I would say to people is you don't have to you know you don't have to sort of throw negative energy around online about every small aspect of of the tournament you can't just enjoy them that is allowed you are allowed to just enjoy them so what have we learnt this week Uh, I don't know if we've learnt anything really but we're not supposed to it's only a podcast Um, but to to just recap the main message I think Stooker needs to find a way to honour its history a bit more. Um, and, and we have to accept as well that all good things come to an end eventually. And this podcast has come to an end for this week, but we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can email us, snookasenepodcast.mail.com. That's newcassinepodcast.mail.com. Uh We are proud members of the Sports Social Network. And we will return for more. Very soon, but for now, as we always say, goodbye. Bye.
0: Sports, social, podcast network. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office.